back to our Answers Bible Curriculum Sunday School. It was a blessing to have our missionaries with us last week. We're going to skip Lesson 7 from our first quarter um, set of curriculum, and we're going straight to Lesson 8, which is what we're talking about today. Lesson 7 was a review in most of the classes, and it was a bonus lesson in the uh, high school and adult classes, so it's okay that we leave that one out. Don't, don't worry, we're not going to be uh, hampered going forward. But today we move out of the book of Judges and into an account that takes place during the time of the Judges. And that is the story of Ruth, the Moabitess. And we're going to cover that whole account today. It's a lot of information, so please, if you have questions or comments, save them to the end of class. That way we can make sure we get through everything in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, in many ways, is a personal version of what we see in the book of Judges as a whole. We saw in the book of Judges, and we discussed last time, that God remains faithful. How so? Well, he's faithful to chasten and judge the disobedient. But he's also faithful to restore the repentant, and to provide for those who cry out to him and seek shelter in him. In today's class, we're going to trace the account of the book of Ruth, first looking at the disaster that befalls Naomi and her family in chapter 1. Then we'll look at how God arranges events for Naomi and Ruth's provision in chapters 2 and 3. And we'll finish by looking at how God's provision for Ruth serves as an analogy for what God has done for mankind in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give me the ability to explain your word. Help us to understand it, appreciate its significance, and apply it into our lives. Let us be changed by your word. Equip me to explain clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth appears right after the book of Judges. As you turn there, I'll give you just a little bit of background info. book of Ruth is named after its chief subject, Ruth. We don't know the book's exact author or the exact date of writing when it was written, but it was probably written during the time of the monarchy of David, since the book is very mindful of David, but not of Solomon. So it's possible that Samuel was the author, since he lived into David's reign, but not Solomon's. We're going to start by reading Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5, where we witness the calamity that befalls Naomi's family. Follow along with me. Now it came about, In the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Pause there. Let's make some observations on this section. Notice we're told when this takes place. In the days when the judges governed, and also when there was a famine in the land. When exactly in the book of Judges is this? Well, it's a little hard to say, though we can use Ruth's connection to David 
mention at the end of the book to come up with a rough estimate. If you just glance at chapter 4 for a moment and the last couple of verses of chapter 4, we see that Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. Since David is born around 1040 BC, we can work backwards. Ruth probably didn't live that much earlier. John MacArthur estimates that the book of Ruth takes place around the judgeship of Jair, which would be around 1125 BC. Answers in Genesis gives a date of about 1140 BC. So remember, book of Ju- or the Judges period begins around 1400, so we're looking at more the latter section of the book of Judges, around chapter 10 or so. Either way, this time of famine that's mentioned here at the beginning of Ruth is not mentioned in the book of Judges. That's okay, because not, not all the calamities or the, the forms of oppression that God brought on Israel are mentioned specifically in Judges. Now, why would a famine come on Israel? I mean, I thought, God, thought they were the blessed people. I thought the land was blessed. Why would there be a famine? Well, we know, right? Because the book of Judges tells us God brings those things as a result of it's a judgment on disobedience. It's a judgment on sin. It's a judgment on their idolatry. When, he, when they turn away from him, he says, I'm going to be faithful to what I said. When you turn away from me, I bring the curse on you. Sometimes other nations, sometimes famine, sometimes plague. And there's a famine on Israel. That means Israel is in a period of disobedience. To be delivered from this famine, what must Israel do? They must. They must repent. They need to turn back to God. They need to put away their idols. Now that's true nationally, but what about the people? Personally, what do they need to do? The text doesn't tell us about Elimelech's spiritual state or his attitude toward God, but what does he decide to do with his family during the famine? Leave Israel for Moab. Elimelech, Naomi, and their two unmarried sons leave Bethlehem, a city whose name means what, by the way? House of Bread. And they go to Moab. Now, where did the people of Moab come from? They were the offspring of Lot and the incestuous union of him with his elder, with his eldest daughter. Moab, so distantly related to um, the line of Israel, was a frequent enemy of Israel. They opposed Israel on the way to the promised land when Israel was looking to be settled in the land. And even during the time of the judges, Moab attacked Israel. So they're not friends of the Israelites. At various points in the Old Testament, God even declares Moab to be a cursed people who are going to be judged by God. But Elimelech and his family go to sojourn in the land of Moab. Now, what does sojourn mean? It means to live there, but for how long? Yeah, temporary stay. You're going to live at a place for a time. That's what it means to sojourn. We're all sojourners here on the earth, right? As Christians, we're only here for a time. Elimelech intended to only live in Moab for a time. However, he dies in Moab. And what do his two sons do? They take Moabite wives for themselves. Now, did God permit Israel to intermarry with the Moabites? 
Not really. When it came to direct prohibitions on intermarriage, God said not to intermarry with any of the people of the land of Canaan. Technically, Moab was outside the land of Canaan. So was that okay? Well, let's remember the principle. Why was it so important that Israel not intermarry with the land, the people of Canaan? They would be pulled away towards idolatry. There may be other reasons associated, but the main one was the gods of the people of the land. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4, just to remind you, says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, that's the people of the land, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for, here's the reason, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So idolatry was the main issue with the prohibition, or it's the main reason for the prohibition against Canaanite intermarriage. So would idolatry be an issue in Moabite intermarriage? Of course it would, because the Moabites are not followers of the true God. Their God was Chemosh. Nehemiah, much later in the Old Testament, he testifies that one of the problems in his day is that the Israelites have intermarried with the people from Moab and Ammon. And he rebukes them for doing so. Actually, violently rebukes them. He pulls out some of their hair. Anyways, how long do Naomi and her sons live in Moab? Ten years. The text doesn't say clearly when during those ten years Elimelech dies or when the sons get married, but the sons live with Naomi in the land of Moab for ten years. Strangely, what don't the sons receive from their marriages during their time in Moab? Children. They have no children. And then, after ten years, they both die. Malin and Chilean die, and they leave no children, and they leave a house of three widows. Okay, let's pause now and ask an, in, an interpretive question. Was it wrong for Elimelech and Naomi to sojourn in idolatrous Moab during Israel's famine? This is an important question, but it's a difficult one. I'm going to lay out a little bit of the for and against on this issue. On the one hand, we might say, it's not wrong to leave. We can't make that judgment. Some reasons. Number one, the author doesn't condemn them. It doesn't say they went to sojourn in the land of Moab, and that was evil in the sight of the Lord. No, it doesn't say anything about that. And someone might say, well, look at what happened to them. Obviously, God disapproved. They would say, well, bad circumstances are not necessarily an indicator of God's will or displeasure. Remember Job. What about the Moabite women? Weren't they supposed to not marry Moabites? Well, they say, well, maybe they converted to worshiping Yahweh before they got married. Maybe they actually became followers of Yahweh, and that's why Malin and Chilean married them. Fourth reason, there are other righteous persons in the Bible who temporarily leave Israel because of famine or danger. Some to mention, Abraham and Jacob. Abraham leaves Israel and goes to Egypt during a time of famine. Jacob leaves the land of Canaan when he's under threat of his brother Esau. David leaves the land of Canaan when he's fleeing from Saul. He stays in Philistia for a time. The Shunammite. Elisha raises the son of the Shunammite. And later on in, the, uh, later on in that section of Old Testament history... She leaves the land because of famine, leaves Israel. 
And then Joseph and Mary themselves in the New Testament, they leave Israel because they're in danger and they go to Egypt. So are we going to condemn all of them for doing the same thing? And then isn't it just common sense? Shouldn't you, if you're able, remove yourself from danger? If there's a famine, get away from the famine. Go to where there is food, or at least more food. So, it, some would say it was not wrong for them to leave. Others would say, however, some reasons why it was wrong for them to leave. First, the author's lack of condemnation does not mean that it wasn't wrong. We're familiar at this point by now that Old Testament narrative frequently describes evil acts without giving comment. Second, yes, it's true, bad circumstances are not always an indicator of God's will, but the Mosaic Covenant under which Israel is operating specifically promises that when they're disobedient, God will chasten them. Third, when it comes to the marriage of the Moabites to the sons, it's very unlikely that they became true followers of Yahweh before they were married. As we're going to see, Orpah is willing to return to her old gods. That doesn't seem like a true conversion. And it's actually very surprising in the text when Ruth is not willing to return to her old gods. So it's not a very strong uh, argument to say that, oh, this marriage was allowed because they became true converts. What about those other sojourners? Well, when we examine those more closely, those situations, they're not exactly parallel. If we look at Abraham and Jacob, well, they were never actually settled in Israel. They were sojourners in Canaan just as they were sojourners in other places. They're not exactly the same. Israel was permanently settled in Canaan. Moreover, you may remember Abraham, when it came to finding a wife for his son Isaac, he explicitly stated, don't take my son away from this land. Even to find a wife. Even to find a Jewish wife. Or what would have been in the line of a... Terah, don't take my son away from this land. And then Joseph, Mary, and the Shunammite, yes, they did leave Israel during times of danger, but they were specifically commanded by God to do so. So they're kind of special cases. Can't really use them as a parallel. And then there's David. David did not necessarily do right when he fled Israel. In fact, if we go back and examine the context of his flight, David appears condemned. Look, actually, keep your finger in Ruth, but look at 1 Samuel 27. You remember in David's life, even though he's anointed by Samuel to be the new king of Israel, he's constantly fleeing from Saul. Saul, who's very jealous of David, and wants the throne for Saul's son, Jonathan. David's constantly fleeing. God often miraculously delivers Saul into the hands of David. But at one point, in chapter 27, verse 1, we read this. David says to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul will then despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Okay, it seems like a common sense move, and it actually works. Saul does stop pursuing him. But just a few verses earlier, is one of the instances where God grants David a miraculous deliverance from Saul. Saul comes to pursue David. David or Saul is placed into David's hand, but David refuses to kill Saul. And then he 
confronts Saul. And when he does, listen to some of the things that David says to Saul. Back in verses 19 to 20 in chapter 26. So just about five or six verses earlier. Look at verse 19. Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For, why are they cursed? They have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single fleet just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So why, according to David, was it so evil for men to encourage Saul to pursue David? Cursed are they before the Lord because what are they essentially doing? Yeah, he says, you are driving me out from Israel and driving me away from the inheritance and presence of the Lord. David says, that's a terrible thing. You ought to be cursed. Anyone who encourages you to do this ought to be cursed. It's a big deal to David to not be in Israel. Outside of Israel, he's no longer with God-fearers, no longer able to go to the tabernacle, no longer able to present offerings to God. David tells Saul... David needs to be where God is. And God's dwelling place is in Israel. Now, it's interesting that these words appear right before David's flight in chapter 27. And I think that context condemns David's flight. If if that's true, David, then why did you flee? He chooses to be away from the Lord's presence. So, if we use David as a parallel to Elimelech and Naomi, then the family in this book of Ruth stands condemned for their action. And finally, when we talk about whether it's common sense to leave, let's remember that flight brings its own dangers. By leaving Israel, they're no longer able to work their own land, to care for it, or to reach out to their brethren for help. Remember the law actually said that when there was a, um, a poor person in Israel that his brethren were to help him. They can't receive help. They can't give help. By leaving Israel, they go to a hostile, idolatrous land where the inhabitants could very easily attack or mistreat them. Remember, Moab's no friend to Israel. By leaving Israel, they virtually assure that their unmarried sons will marry non-Jewish women. I mean, they're not just going to sit around and not get married. By leaving Israel and dwelling by themselves among an idolatrous people, They cut themselves off from the community of the righteous, and they subject themselves to all sorts of idolatrous influences. So, was it wrong to leave Israel? There's not complete agreement among evangelical or trusted interpreters on this issue, but I would side more with that it was wrong for them to leave Israel. Either way you look at this, it's going to affect the way you interpret Ruth. Is the story of Ruth... Similar to the book of Job in that it's not necessarily a judgment for evil. It's just trials God brought onto their lives and they are to trust him and wait for his provision. Or is this a 
account about restoration, about not following after the Lord and then returning to the Lord and seeing how God restores. I think it's more the latter. Just as God brought a famine to disobedient Israel, God brought a personal famine to disobedient Naomi. Either way, this is quite a tragedy. But it's only the beginning of the history presented here in this book. Let's look at the next two verses. Back in Ruth, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. We're going to skip a few verses, but we see here that the famine in Israel has ended. Which means what? What has happened in Israel? The people have, they've turned back to the Lord. They've repented. Right? Because otherwise God wouldn't have relented of the famine. At least some portion of the people repented enough for God to act. And this change in Israel also gives occasion for Naomi to return to Israel. And really to the Lord. While her daughters-in-law have developed great affection for her, Naomi tells them to return to their families and find new husbands, because she's not going to be able to provide for them. Look down at verse 15. We'll read this next section, verses 15 to 22. How did the daughters respond? Well, Orpah decides that she will go back. She is sad, but she ultimately kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth doesn't leave. Look at verse 15. Then she, that's Naomi, said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus, may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. All right, let's observe this section. Is it a quick question? Okay, then hang on to it till the end. Naomi urges Ruth, for Ruth's own sake, to return to her people. But Ruth will not. Instead, Ruth promises, your land will be my land. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth even calls down an oath by appealing to whom? The Lord, to Yahweh. May Yahweh judge me with calamity if I leave you at all. And this is significant. 
Because what kind of life can Ruth expect to live with Naomi? Naomi is an old widow. It's likely going to be a hard life, a life of poverty. And this is exactly what we see in chapter 2. The pair returns to Bethlehem. People are startled by the change that has taken place in Naomi and her family. She tells them not to call her Naomi anymore, but Mara instead. If you have study Bibles, you might know, but what does Naomi mean? It means pleasant. But what does Mara mean? Bitter. She says, don't call me pleasant. Look at me. Look at what's happened to me. Call me bitter. She says, God has acted very bitterly toward me. But she also acknowledges something in verse 21. What does Naomi acknowledge? She says, not only has the Lord acted bitterly towards me, but what, what else? He has... Well, he says that he has afflicted her, acted bitterly towards her. But then there's that curious phrase. He has testified against me, or he has witnessed against me. What could the Lord possibly witness against a person or testify against a person? Yeah, he would testify of their righteousness or of their unrighteousness. She says, look what's happened to me. The Lord is testifying against me. Now, what is she referring to? Is she referring to just her imperfection in general? Or is she referring to her time in Moab where, when she shouldn't have been there? I take it more to be the latter, but uh, it could be, could be either. Verse 22 mentions the time of year that Ruth and Naomi arrive back in Israel. They come back just in time for what? A barley harvest. So this would be in the middle or the end of April. And that's significant. Let's pause to ask, how does Ruth demonstrate faith in Yahweh? Yeah, Rob. Yeah. I mean, this sounds a lot like what other instance in the Old Testament? Orpah. Yeah, Orpah doesn't go. And that makes sense. It's going to be hard. Her mother-in-law is urging her not to go. But when else have we had a person in the Bible leave his land to go to the Lord's land and to follow the Lord? Abraham, right? And that that was an act of faith. We see the same thing happening here. Yes, Steve. Oh, Rahab too, right? When she turns her back against the people in Jericho. And even though she doesn't leave the land of Canaan, she's definitely changing sides. She's definitely deciding to go with Israel. You see Ruth doing the same thing here. She says, your God will be my God. Your land will be my land. And I'm going to leave all that I know here and go with you into that land, even if it's hard. And we see by her oath, she she does believe in Yahweh. She swears by Yahweh. Her decision to stay with Naomi is an act of faith. It's also an act of love and loyalty to her mother-in-law, who's also, I mean, it's going to be hard for Ruth, but it's going to be super hard for Naomi. She says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to care for you. How does Ruth's attitude compare to Naomi's?
That's, yeah, Ruth definitely is demonstrating faith. What about Naomi? <clears throat> it's hard to say exactly what she's thinking. I mean, she's talking about how the Lord is be- de- dealing very bitterly with her. Is she at a place of repentance? Is she trusting in the Lord? Maybe. She certainly is recognizing that all this is happening to her because of God, but it's still very difficult for her to take. But Ruth is going to help Naomi, and God is going to be gracious to both of them. Let's look at now how the Lord provides for this pair. Look at the beginning of chapter 2, looking at now at verses 1 to 13. We're moving our way through the book. Verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Stop there. This is just a beautiful section. Let's notice some things. Ruth goes to glean in the fields of Israel. What does it mean to glean? That's exactly right. To pick up the leftovers, specifically of a harvest. This word survives in our English vocabulary today. We sometimes talk about gleaning information. What can we glean from this passage? Like picking up up bits of information or small lessons. But it it refers back to this practice. And God actually ordained gleaning to be something that Israel allowed. In Leviticus 19, during harvest, Israelites were to make sure that they did not pick up every last bit of grain or pick every ripe fruit. And they were not to go back over the fields if they noticed they missed anything. They were to leave this extra for the poor, the widows, and the strangers. Now, the Israelites did not always follow this ordinance. Greedy Israelites found ways to not obey this command. They prevented people from gleaning in their fields, They made sure that there was nothing left so that when people did come to glean, they didn't find anything. 
Well, when people came to glean, they harassed and mistreated them so that they did not stay. And then they went back and picked up the, the rest themselves. The owners did. And what could the poor, the widows, and the strangers do? They didn't have any power. They didn't have any recourse. They could simply cry out to the Lord. But Ruth goes out to glean, not Naomi. Now, verse 3 has an interesting phrase. It says, She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Literally, the Hebrew here is, Her chance chanced upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. That's kind of a weird statement in a book and a society that is overseen by God. In effect, the author is saying, what a coincidence that she came to Boaz's field. Boaz just happens to be, we're told, a man of great wealth, or the phrase can be translated, a man of great valor. And he's a close relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. And what things do we see Boaz doing for Ruth here? Well, he does a number of things. What's one of them? Yeah. Yeah, he says, I've told my servants not to touch you. They will not mistreat you. What else? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, he says, glean in my field. Keep on gleaning here and follow after my maidservants. Those would be the ones who are harvesting the field, the female workers. He says, follow after them. Keep following after them and don't go to another field. What else? Yeah, he says, anytime you get thirsty, go drink from the water that my workers have drawn. You don't have to draw it yourself, just drink from the water jars. What else? We also see that he inquires after who she is. He, when he speaks to her, he refers to her as his daughter. Uh, I think we covered all the other ones. And we also see, not with Ruth, but we see that with his own workers, he greets them in, or how does he greet them? Yeah, he says, uh, he, he refers to the Lord. Uh, what was the specific phrase? May the Lord be with you. And they respond, may the Lord bless you. That tells us something, I think, about Boaz. Oh, and in relation to the idea that he tells his servants not to mistreat her, remember, this is a very real problem, or potential very real problem. Foreigners are often targets in various societies, especially when those foreigners come from enemy nations, which is exactly what Ruth is. What's Ruth's reaction to all these things from Boaz? She's very grateful. She doesn't understand. Why are you being so good to me? I'm a foreigner. And what reason does Boaz give for his kindness? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's probably kind, even if she wasn't uh, a super righteous person. But he mentions that he knows about her character. He knows what she's done for Naomi, the faith she's shown in God by choosing to live in Israel and to trust in God for her provision. Side note, I think we mentioned this in a previous class. Boaz, according to the genealogy of Matthew 1, is a descendant of what other notable foreigner in Israel's history? Rahab. He is... uh, It could be the son, but more likely the grandson or the great-grandson of Rahab, the Canaanite harlot. Boaz pronounces a blessing on Ruth 
And he uses an interesting phrase. He says, you've sought refuge under Yahweh's wings. This is a metaphor, a metaphor that calls to mind the care, provision, and protection that chicks have under the wings of their mother. He says, I can see that this is what you are doing with God, even in your difficult state. And I pray that the Lord provides for you, and I want to help you myself. The word translated wings here refers to tips or edges, and it sometimes is applied to birds, but sometimes it's applied to garments. Other ways that we could faithfully translate this phrase would be, you've sought refuge under the Lord's garment, or you've sought covering from the Lord's garment. Ruth thanks Boaz for such overwhelming kindness and acknowledges her unworthiness. All right, let's ask some interpretive questions again. Um, Boaz does eventually have a son, yes. His name is not Harry. We're going to actually learn his name. Very um, important person, Obed. And he's going to be in the line of David. But yes, Boaz does have a son. But that's later. We haven't got there yet. Now, some questions. The fact that Ruth goes out to glean says, what about Ruth and Naomi? They're poor. Yeah, we mentioned this before. They have no other means of getting food. Remember at this time, Food is not abundant like it is today. If you had money, yes, you could usually buy food in the marketplace. But what most people did for food is that they harvested it. And they had to use up that harvest the rest of the year. Because once the harvest was over, there would be no more opportunity to get food for yourself. So it's really important that Ruth goes out to glean and get as much food as she can for the future. Now, why doesn't Naomi glean? Probably because she's too old. She's too old for that kind of labor. Now, what does the author... No, let me me ask this. Why does the author stress the coincidental nature of Ruth's arrival in Boaz's field? Why is he highlighting for us, what a coincidence? Yeah, Greg. Yeah, by... Stressing what a coincidence it is, he's showing that it's actually not a coincidence at all. Saying, oh, wow, what a coincidence. Her chance chanced upon Boaz's field. No, this is the Lord. This is the Lord's generous and sovereign provision. He's making sure we don't miss that. What kind of man is Boaz? We can see from his actions that he is. He's a very righteous man. Godly, kind, generous. Notice again that Boaz calls Ruth his daughter. What does this tell us about Boaz? Yeah, I'm on him. What? Yeah, he's older. Probably much older than she is. I mean, it's a, it's a term of kindness and care, but it also indicates that he's probably old enough to be your father. So there's a significant age difference between the two. Now, we won't read the rest of this chapter, but Boaz does even more than what we read here. He lets Ruth eat from the food that the servants are eating as they work the field, and he allows her to take some of the extra food home. 
When gleaning, he lets her not just take from what drops or what is missed by the servants, but even from what is already harvested. He says, you see those gathered grain bundles? Go ahead and take some from those stacks or from those bundles. He wants to make sure that she and Naomi are totally provided for. And Ruth gleans for all the barley harvest and all of the wheat harvest, working hard many days, beating out her gleanings and then taking them home to Naomi. She labors for two months. And God is graciously providing for these widows. But he's not done. Let's look now at chapter 3. Chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 to 18. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. And he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night. When morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Okay. Another just amazing section here. Let's observe. Naomi has her daughter follow a series of commands. Make yourself look nice. Show up at the barley winnowing party. And after Boaz is merry from feasting and goes to sleep, notice where he goes to sleep. When no one is around, uncover his feet and lie down there. And when he wakes up, speak to him and follow whatever he tells you to do. Now these directions may sound a little weird to us, and they are a little weird, but there's something amazing happening here. Ruth does exactly as her mother commands. And when Boaz awakes and asks in the dark who is there, Ruth identifies herself and then makes a request. Spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. Now the word for covering here is the same word 
used in chapter 2 to describe the Lord's covering, where it says the Lord's wings. It's the same word. So Ruth's request can also be translated, spread your wings over your maid, or spread your garment over your maid. And she gives a reason. For you are a close relative. Now what does that have to do with anything? Well, Ruth and Naomi are invoking another provision given by God to Israel regarding widows. In Israel, when a man died childless, this was considered a tragedy. Because without an heir, that man's name would pass away from Israel, and his land inheritance would eventually be given to someone outside of his family. Furthermore, the women in the deceased man's house would no longer have a provider. To to protect against this situation, God gave Israel the law of leveret marriage, and it's recorded in Deuteronomy 25. According to this law, the deceased man's closest unmarried relative was to marry the widow and have children by her. The firstborn of this marriage would be considered the son of the deceased man and would carry on that man's name and receive his inheritance. The other, the other children would belong to the name and inheritance of the new husband. When an eligible relative refused to do this act of kindness, it was a great shame to him. And the widow was, according to the law, to confront the man in public, symbolically remove the sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. The relative's family were then to be known as the house of him whose sandal was removed. So it was a great shame to not not do leverant marriage when you, when you were asked to. Now what's Boaz's reaction to Ruth's request for this kind of marriage? What's Boaz's reaction? He's like, sounds great. I would love to do this for you. He thanks her actually for this even greater kindness. And he says he will do it. However, there's just one problem. There is a closer relative than me. So if he, I'm going to, if we're going to find out whether he wants to redeem you. And if he does, great. If not, I will do it. I swear by Yahweh that I will do it. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now, what does that term redeem actually mean? Very important term in the Bible. Buy back. Yes. In the Old Testament, impoverished Israelites sold into slavery could be redeemed or bought back. For a certain price. Or if a poor Israelite had to sell his land, a relative could redeem it. That is, they buy it back. Redemption was also part of leveret marriage. The land inheritance of the deceased husband had to be literally bought. And part of that purchase price was marrying the widow. Now, because of these literal meanings, redemption, and we're more familiar with these symbolic meanings, also comes to mean to save or to restore. But it goes back to that literal meaning of buying back. Now Boaz has Ruth lied his feet until morning and sends her away while it is still dark, making sure that her visit remains unknown. But he does not send away Ruth empty-handed. He gives her six measures of barley to take home, probably meaning six sias, or what would have been about 60 to 85 pounds of barley. That's a lot. Not only is that generous, but it shows that Ruth has got some strength. When Ruth reports the outcome to Naomi, what does Naomi assure Ruth? Yeah, he's going to head off this issue on the double. 
All right, let's ask some interpretive questions. Why does Ruth approach Boaz the way that she does? Isn't this weird? Some have foolishly suggested that Ruth, in desperation, and because of her background from Moab, a pagan nation, she's trying to use immorality as a way to win over Boaz. But for multiple reasons, this cannot be. For starters, Ruth and Naomi are actually not that desperate because Boaz has already shown himself to be a willing benefactor to them. He's provided a lot for them. Furthermore, Boaz and Ruth are said to be known for their righteousness. I mean, we can see Boaz is a righteous man. He tells her that she is well known for her excellence as a person. It's not consistent for them to engage in immorality. And the text clearly notes that she does not lie with him. She lies at his feet the whole night. So it's not immorality happening here. So what is going on here? Well, we know, we certainly can see that Ruth is requesting leveret marriage from Boaz. But why in this way? Well, one explanation is that this was just a custom of the time. This was a way that women could ask men for marriage. Because usually the man was the one who asked. He asked the woman or he asked the woman's family. But here we see perhaps the custom of a woman asking a man. And Ruth needed to do this, likely because Boaz was much older. Boaz would not consider it proper for him to ask her to marry. Ruth would need to ask him, and it would have to be done in this way. Now, this explanation is possible. But whether this mode of proposal was a prevalent custom or not, we can see that Ruth's mode of request reflects the request itself. She asks for Boaz to spread his garment over her and she symbolically arranges her posture for such an act to take place. She uncovers his feet, which were likely covered by his garment, which he was probably using as a blanket, and she places herself at his feet so that he might cover her. She's acting out what she's requesting. Now, what does garment spreading have to do with marriage? Well, before I answer that, we should note that we see the same terminology used by God in another part of the Bible to describe his relationship with Israel. Don't need to turn there, but I will read to you from Ezekiel. You can turn there if you want. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God reminds Israel about how God graciously saved Israel, provided for Israel, and became Israel's God. In Ezekiel 16, verses 6 to 8, God says this, When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, totally helpless, I said to you while you were in your blood, Live! Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine declares the Lord God. Same phrase here, same words. I spread my skirt or my wing or my garment over you. I entered into covenant with you and you became mine. That is, you became my wife. Spreading one's garment over another is a metaphor for marriage. One commentator explains the metaphor in this way. 
All that a man is, ultimately, is contained within his garment. All that he owns, all his power, all his desires, all his needs, all his concerns. However, in marriage, a man opens his garment and spreads it over another, wrapping his wife in the same garment, and thereby taking upon himself what she owns, what she desires, and what she needs. Now, under the same garment, they share everything. The man no longer just cares for himself, but he's added to himself the cares of his wife. He now cares for her. To spread one's garment over another, then, is a parallel metaphor to two becoming one flesh. The two become one. They are joined together. This metaphor, this uh, covering metaphor, garment covering metaphor, perhaps explains a central tradition that still exists in Jewish weddings today. You may know that during Jewish wedding ceremonies, the bride and groom stand under a sheet. They stand under a covering, or even, literally, a garment, which is called the chuppah. And it's a symbol of the couple's new one home. So Ruth's proposal to Boaz is a symbolic depiction of this marriage metaphor. As the kinsman redeemer, she says, as the close relative redeemer, marry me and cover me with your garment. Take me into your care. Now, why does she do this in the middle of the night? I'm not sure. Ruth probably wanted privacy, chance to speak to Boaz alone. But whatever the reason, we can safely say that nothing immoral or unseemly was taking place here. And Boaz wants to make sure that nobody gets that idea by not letting the, the visit become known. Now, why does Boaz praise Ruth for this even greater kindness? Kind of seems weird. It was an even greater kindness, he says, that she asked him to marry her. Why was that an even greater kindness? Yeah, Julie. Yeah, so it was a kindness to whom? Yeah, I mean, it's a kindness in multiple ways, but certainly it's a kindness to Boaz, who, as an older man and likely a widower, had little prospect of remarriage. It was also a kindness to Naomi in making sure that Naomi was provided for. I mean, she could have waited around and be like, oh, you know, find just the right guy for me, and, you know, Naomi, not worried about you, I'm worried about myself. It was a kindness to Naomi. She's going to make sure that Naomi is provided for. And it was also a kindness to Elimelech's family because by marrying a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, Ruth makes sure that the name and land inheritance do not pass away from the family. She married outside the family, then it would have. Elimelech's name would have disappeared and the land inheritance would be given outside his family. So it was a kindness to Elimelech's family. It was an even greater kindness better than what she'd already demonstrated to Naomi and others. But Naomi is quite right about what Boaz will do. So let's sum up the rest of the book. Looking at chapter 4, Boaz immediately sets about securing Ruth's redemption. The closer kinsman redeemer is willing to buy the land, but not willing to marry Ruth, which I'm sure Boaz was quite happy to hear. There's no mention of face spitting in this confrontation, I think because Boaz is really happy about it. And I I think everybody's kind of happy about it. Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi's land. Chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, they tell us, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the land of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malin. Moreover, 
I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Witnesses confirm the transaction, and they pronounce a blessing on the union of Boaz and Ruth. Two are married. Ruth conceives and later gives birth to a son, a son to carry on the name of Elimelech. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 17, describes the outcome. Verse 14, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, amazing outcome. An unimaginable tragedy turns into a situation of incredible joy and restoration. Boaz redeems Ruth, and by extension, redeems Naomi that both women may dwell securely and be provided for. Now this account shows us much about the righteousness of Ruth, her faith, the righteousness of Boaz, his kindness. It's not really about them. Who's the real redeemer in all this? This is about the Lord, right? This is about Yahweh. God is the savior and restorer. He is the one who brought food back into the land of Canaan after a time of famine. He is the one who brought Ruth to faith in order that Ruth might minister to her mother-in-law in an extravagant way. He is the one who brought Ruth by chance into Boaz's field so that the two might meet, that they might marry, and that Naomi might receive back in an even greater way what she had lost. But God is not simply a provider for believers during the sojourning of their lives. He is the necessary redeemer for their eternal life. Job says memorably in Job 19, 25 to 27, As for me, I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. More than Ruth and Naomi, we need a redeemer to save us from our curse, to bring us out from a doomed people, and to provide for us. God is more powerful and more generous than Boaz. He's the one who caused Boaz to be generous. And we see the beginnings of God's redemption plan, or we see rather more of God's redemption plan being unfolded here. Because Ruth is the mother of Obed, and Obed is the the forefather of David, who would be a prototypical redeemer for Israel. But his descendant would be the ultimate redeemer. And all of this from Bethlehem, right? David's city, and later the place of our Lord's birth. God sent his own son as a redeemer to buy us back. Those of us who have turned from our sin, who like Ruth, leave the cursed, our cursed land and our cursed gods 
and believe in Jesus. Turn our lives over to him, and we are saved. We are redeemed. We are restored. Ephesians 1, 7 to 8 says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Because that's what we need. More than the sustenance of this life, we need to be bought back from the wages of sin, the penalty of sin. When we repent, Jesus buys us back and restores us. Jew, Gentile, former God-hater, man, woman, worldling, self-righteous hypocrite, all of them are cleansed and brought back by God. Bought back, rather. He is the great Redeemer. So a few application questions as we close. Is Christ your Redeemer? Have you repented of your sins and allowed God to spread his garment over you? And as he cares for you, do you now in everything seek the will of your heavenly husband? Have you fallen into hard times, either because of your own sin or because of God's mysterious sovereignty? Do you see that your Redeemer will provide for you? Even if he allows you to go through a time of hardship, he will provide, just as he did for Naomi and Ruth. Not in the exact same way, but in a similarly good way. Do you have a heart that seeks to help the downtrodden just as Boaz does? And ultimately, as God does. Because we know God is the Redeemer in this whole story. And do you trust your Redeemer enough that when temptation comes and life gets hard, you do seek shelter in his wings? You don't simply indulge what your flesh tells you to do. Fleeing from God, fleeing to falsely comforting idols, but you trust and shelter yourself in the wings of your Redeemer. We're out of time. So if you have questions or comments, you can see me afterwards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the Redeemer. And these are not platitudes, glib words. This is reality. We need you as our Redeemer. Yes, we need you to provide for us in our lives, but we know that this life is a sojourn. We need you to provide for us eternally. We need you to buy us back from our cursed state in Adam, to give us new hearts, to make us your own. And you did this at great cost. It was a cost for Boaz, but it was much greater cost for you. It cost you your, your blood, ultimate sacrifice, the wrath of your father on you. Jesus, we thank you for being our redeemer. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus as our Redeemer. Continue to provide for us. Cause us to trust and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.